This is the place where it all happened, with the Beatles, where the music came from, where, where they generated all this energy and, and practiced until we fell off the stage. We were completely exhausted. Before the Beatles rocked the world, they were a backing band in Hamburg. This is the singer they backed, Tony Sheridan. Proudly Irish, a groundbreaking rocker and lead guitarist, he was a music mentor for the young group. Though initially they were credited on the record as the Beat Brothers because Beatles sounds a lot like a German slang word for penis. I said to Paul, I knew he was a natural bass player, and he still is. When I said to Paul, can you do the second part of my solo? Can you play just C and nothing else? The low C? Just... Something, you know, on the same note? And he did. So if you listen to my Bonnie, the second part of the solo, you will hear Paul doing exactly that, which, you know, being a great bass player... George was learning like this as well because there's nobody else for him to learn from. Lennon and McCartney, as a duo, of course, the harmonies coming out were really fantastic. You know, they'd taken everything they could from the Everly Brothers, say, and they put a bit more into it on on top as well, and brought George in singing a third harmony as well, which was wonderful stuff. We did some great stuff together, you know, when they were backing me doing vocals, oohs and ahs, wonderful stuff. The Beatles and Tony Sheridan had a brief but intense working relationship. He helped form them as a musical phenomenon. When the story of the Beatles is written, Tony Sheridan has his place. But Tony's story? I am Tony Sheridan. That's something else. I was Swami Prabhu Sharan for years because I was a follower of Bhagwan. Tony Sheridan plays uh, rock and roll and rhythm and blues and blues music, and he's been around sort of quite a long time now. I was born in Norwich in, in England, grew up there. In the wartime, where sort of half the men were in uniform and some of the women too. My father was Irish, but he disappeared by the time I sort of came to my senses. But I know we'll meet again some sunny day. My mother went to London to check on her relatives because of the Blitz, etc. And she came back pregnant. Keep smiling through Just like you always do And the effect it had on my life was that my father and mother broke up. He obviously said, how come you're pregnant? You know, it wasn't me. The end result was I finished up in this children's home and I remember standing in this kid's bed, holding onto the railings and shaking them, and seeing my mother disappear down the ward. I, won't be long. I was screaming. Be 
happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing this song. We meet again. In, in those five minutes, I lost my mother forever, definitely, definitely, definitely. Not just my mum, she was taking the love with her as well, so now I'm this horrible piece of nothing in, with these other horrible pieces of nothing. I don't know when she came back. It might have been months later, I don't know. Anyway, she came and she picked me up again, and I couldn't believe the happiness I felt. And if that sort of thing happens to a child, your mum comes and picks you up again. That's a happy reunion, of course. And But the damage has been done. The, the, the damage is... It's, it's there. The story of my life, basically, apart from the music, which is the positive side, it's been the sort of relationships which haven't worked one way or another. My mother was a pianist. She wanted to be a singer, and she was training to be a singer as well, classical. I basically grew up in the situation where at home it was Mum and it was Schubert and it was Bach and, and piano music and no radio, no TV, of course. Anything from America was bad. It was evil. In the meantime, I'd been sent to, for violin lessons because my mother wanted me to be Yehudi Menuhin or a Protestant priest, a vicar. Music never sort of deserted me. It was the only thing I sort of hung on to because the rest of life was shit at the time. It really was, in one way and another. I always felt a bit out of place anyway. So when the puberty thing started, Lonnie Donegan came along, I think it was the end of 55, early 56, Rock Island Line... All I heard was the beginning. Now this is the story about the Rock Island Line. Now the Rock Island Line is a railroad line and it runs down into New Orleans. In the key of D, as I know now. And just outside of New Orleans is a, a big toll gate. D sounded very juicy and to all me. All the trains that go through the toll gate, why, they got to pay the man some money. I thought... What is this? It's touching something in me which is sprouting all of a sudden. Right now we see a train, she's coming on down the line. I felt like cauliflowers were coming out of my ears. What is this music? This sort of skiffle stuff, Lonnie Donegan. Wow, wow. What you got on board there, boy? In the driver, he... Sing right on back down the depot agent, tell him what he got on board. Skiffle groups originated with African Americans in the 20s. I got sheep, I got cows. It was a liberation. Self-made instruments like washboards and tea chests or cheap instruments like banjos and guitars. It sort of turned a switch in me. I'm sure John Lennon on the other side of the country in Liverpool, I'm sure he felt something very, very similar. First time he heard Donegan. He was usually Donegan with us, you know, before Elvis. Of course, you don't get what he's saying now. Going home and going down the rock out of line. She said, but I fooled you, I fooled you, I got pig iron, I got pig iron, I got all... By that time, I was already 
thinking, uh, a skiffle group? Could I possibly start a skiffle group? How? How do I get a guitar when my mother won't buy me one? I was 15 at the time. Now, being a musician at the grammar school, I was very often in the music room and the music store. Now I thought, if I borrow a clarinet and go down to the Norwich, to the city, I saw this guitar hanging in the window in the pawn shop. Now I thought, if I take this, borrow this clarinet and go down to the guy and give him the clarinet, he will give me the guitar, I will take the guitar, I will learn it quickly, I will also play it publicly before long, earn a bit of money, go to the man again, buy back the clarinet and put it back where I found it. Yes? It didn't work like that. No idea how the police was informed because basically I hadn't done much wrong at all. You know, okay, so it must have been the guy in the shop or something. I don't know. So I had to give the guitar back, and nobody knocked me. Nobody threw the book at me or anything. What did happen was the headmaster told my mother to get me a guitar. You know, this boy, all he wants is a guitar. So I got a guitar all of a sudden, the hard way. A cheap one, five pounds it cost. I left the grammar school, sixth form, and went to the art school, and all the while I'm playing uh, Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O and stuff. In the skiffle group I'd formed in Norwich called The Saints, based on Leslie Charteris, I painted the tea chest myself with the saint figure on it, you know, the matchstick figure with a halo. And we were the saints, and we did very well. We won a competition in Norfolk and got 15 quid beat about 10 other groups who wanted to beat us up because we won. It was either become an art teacher or stay with the music and let it take you somewhere, which was a big jump in those days because nobody thought about doing things like that. I'm reading Melody Maker. I see that everything that's happening in the world is down in London, in this in Soho, the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, or something, you know, Old Wardour Street and Old Compton Street, and all these wonderful names I was reading. And I thought, well, I'll have to go down to London, go down to Soho, and take my guitar and see what happens. Okay, and, and so I've, I've got my skiffle group together. We all go down. I, I convince them we've got to go to London because we're going to make it. <laughs> we came into London, we hitchhiked in trucks and things. The guy led us out on Seven Sisters Road. There was a pub. And we went in the pub and we said to the publican, we're a skiffle group, would it be okay if we played for you in the evening and you pay us a bit? How, how would that be? What do, you, what do you think? And he says, this is how it was. He says, it's, it's, he's Irish. That's a bloody good idea, you know. And I stuck it out. My comrades, so to speak, went back home, and I was lucky. I, like, in the second night in Soho, I got a job at the Two Wise Coffee Bar. And, you know, I was full of bravado. And 
I was in a predicament. Half of me is skiffle now, half of me is rock and roll, and I'm combing my hair like rock and roll, not like a skiffle guy. I told myself I'm going to get myself an electric guitar. I'm going to play electric guitar, not like the normal skiffle guys doing jung 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 jung. I'm going to get myself a six-string electric guitar and learn it quickly, like in two weeks. Learn to play solos. I'll copy at the beginning. I'm saying this to myself. I will copy Chuck Berry. I will copy uh, Eddie Cochran or Buddy Holly. You know. So I said this to myself. I'm going to do it very quick. I'm going to learn and become a great guitar player. I'm going to be a great singer. I'm going to be one of the best because nobody else is doing that. And I'm going to knock them all out and God will be on my side and my mother will forgive me and all the rest of it. turned us budding rock and rollers on was the atrocity of Elvis himself, you know, the, the, just this cheek of getting on a stage and singing like that. And Gene Vincent doing sort of more or less the same thing with a tremendous guitar player behind him and a group sort of banging out a big backbeat. I couldn't believe that this is wonderful stuff. Never forget Bebop Alula, you know, when I heard that. That was Vincent's first record, Bebop Alula. What a masterpiece. And we were on tour, Gene and I, with Eddie Cochran. I remember saying to Eddie one night, Could I try your guitar? Because you've got these thin strings on there. I said, How, where do you get the thin strings from? Because in, in Britain, they're all just one gauge, as they were in those days, so heavy steel electric strings. He says, Tony, Tony, I'm going to tell you a secret, Tony. This is the way we do it. We take a first uh, string, and we put that on, and then we take another first, and we put that on in place of the second string. So you have two firsts. And then in, in place of the third, you put on a second. And by the time you get to the sixth string, it's the, it's really the fifth string, and you don't need the thick string. So, you you know, and I was listening to this. I thought, wow, this is good stuff. To sort of, uh, nobody's heard that before. And it meant you could bend the strings then. You know, you could put, bend them, you know what I mean? In the middle of a solo, going... I remember in Bristol, the last day of the tour, Gene and Eddie, they wanted to go back home to the States. They'd had enough. There ain't no cure for the summertime blues. And they were drinking a lot and everything. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't drinking anything, hardly. A, a little beer, maybe a small beer. Then I, that was enough. But they were sort of overdoing it and you know, getting high and I don't know what. If you want to use a car to go riding next Sunday. Uh, on the last day, they wanted to go to London, and they rented a car and a driver, and uh, they all headed out down to London. And I said, uh, can, "Can I come with you? You know, have you, you know, have you got room at the back?" So, 
No, sorry, Tony. Tony, we, we, we're full up, man. I'm sorry. Can't, can't take it, man. So I was standing, I, was, I really felt sort of let, let down, you know. And so I went around the corner and I bought myself a little bottle of whiskey. And I'd never tasted it in my life. And I said to myself, I'm going to drink this now. And whatever it does to me, I'm going to let it happen. And because, I mean, this is, I'm frustrated. I am really frustrated now. And it tasted awful. It, it tasted really bad. I thought, God, why did they drink this? Why did they like drinking stuff like this? And uh, it, ca- it all came up again pretty quick. And then I heard that they'd had this accident on the way and Eddie had been killed. When I heard about this next day, I, sort of, I thought, God, I, I could have been in that car. It really hit me then. You know, I, thought, I could have been in that car. Through the car crash, Tony had a brush with rock and roll history. He was now headed for his part in a rock and roll legend. Anyway, so I went back to London and I'm, I'm hanging out with a few musicians and relaxing after this tour. And the subject came up of uh, going over to Hamburg in Germany to the red light district and playing at a club every night. You know, not just a half an hour or an hour or something, but all night, you know. And that sounded so attractive. What? Playing all night. Wonderful, you know. Like, till two in the morning or more. Because previously, the longest gig I'd ever had, I think it was 45 minutes, sort of playing with my group. By that time, I had a group and uh, was on TV. And, uh, you know, was, uh, the idea of playing all night to a young audience and being able to play anything I wanted, as loud and as vulgar as I wanted, just to let it all out, that was not allowed in Britain. You know, there was nowhere you could do that. So anyway, I said, yeah, I like the idea. Okay. And something in me went, click. That's the right thing to do. This is where you're going. You're now going over to Hamburg in Germany, to the enemy. Yes, right from the station in the black cabs, you know, and... Cobblestone streets, which has changed now, all of it, yeah. Of course, you're getting back at your mother this way too, you know, for the pain she caused you as a little child. And you're getting back at a few other relatives as well who don't want to see you going over to to Germany to play, you know, and there's a lot of... So, you can't do that, you can't do that. You break my heart if you do that, you know. And, of course, I did that. This is the music from 1960. It's what we were hearing coming out of bars and things. The amazing thing was, in a bar in London, say, in a jukebox, you had sort of Elvis and you had Little Richard, you had Jerry Lee Lewis and God knows what. And here there was hardly anything, anything at all. You'd have to really search for an Elvis song or something, you know? It just wasn't popular. The back room, or the uh, dressing room, you call it today, but and the stage was just over the on that side, on that wall. Quite a big club, actually. 
mean, he had about six, seven hundred people in there every night. I mean, it was it was pretty packed. A lot of people. Strip club in those days. We used to go up the stairs in and up. Must have been this door. It's changed a bit. Anyway, I was playing here with my group, sort of biding time until the top ten opened on the Reaper Barn. It was a top ten club. And in the meantime, we sort of killing time, so to speak, and earning a bit of money as well to live. We played up here between striptease acts. So the chick finished up taking off her bra or whatever and putting it on again. That was it, you know. And then we played sort of uh, 20 minutes rock and roll. So it's the first time that we met the Beatles. They came in here, and I was playing. I remember when they came in, I was playing. I remember the song I was playing. It was um, not Fade Away, not the Rolling Stones. They hadn't made it yet, the Rolling Stones version, but the Buddy Holly thing, you know. On the right-hand side down there is where they were playing, Indra. You want to see that place? Yeah, okay. There's a plaque outside the Indira Club celebrating its part of the Beatles' story. Indra, am in German? Am in August 1966 betraten die Beatles die Bühne des Indra. Es war ihr erstes Deutschland-Engagement und der Beginn einer großen Karriere. I wasn't part of the Beatles by any means. I was just the sort of the house singer, if you like. I was the guy they were looking up to, all of them at the time. And I was being asked, Tony, would you mind playing with this group who would love to back you for the next three, four months or whatever? Do you think, you can you imagine playing with this group and making a go of it? And I was sort of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so, I think so. Yes, all right, well, let's do that. The fact that nobody recorded uh, one single evening, that's such a shame when I think that today it would happen, of course. But in those days, it just sort of went past. You know, everything we did was now. It was playing now. Now it's gone. It was just a practicing ground alone. There was nowhere in the world where you practiced that long and that intensively every night. Play wrong chords and, and, you know, at the expense of the public. Sing too loud, sing the wrong melody, forget the words, whatever. It didn't matter. You could do that. There was nowhere else in the world you could do that and get away with it. Then at the other end you come out, either you're very, very good, really good, or you realise that you haven't got what it takes. To the left, that takes you upstairs to the uh, attic quarters where we used to live. Beatles, you know, all of, all the Beatles would meet together under under the same roof. No drugs, not even joints, nothing except preludins, which were to take your appetite away. 
the good effect was to make you very energetic and very full of uh, energy. Uh, you know, show me the stage. Right. Where's, where's the... Okay, that was useful. We all did that now and again. Now and again. music, 10% beer, and the rest was either food or or something for the heart. Could call it love, I guess, but basically we were all obsessed with what we were doing. As Tony and his backing band became more popular, a German celebrity orchestra leader and record producer came to see them in action. Burke Kempford came in with his entourage one night into the top ten and said, what do you think about the recordings for the record label Polydor? Poly who? Polydor. Oh, Polydor. Polydor Hamburg. Yeah, OK, and we, you know... Where we were sort of getting a, a bit hubristic is the word, I think, at that time too. But of course we agreed because we nothing was more important than eventually making a record. Of course we agreed and we went into the studio and all that, you know. Had a couple of pills in the morning, you know, after three hours sleep or something. And uh, went into the studio and put the stuff down, and uh, it's immaculate what we did. Immaculate. At the end of it, they said, Tony, come back to Liverpool with us and. You know, play the clubs around the Merseyside, like, no thanks, guys. I said, because they, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen with them, and I was never part of the group. What they were saying was, come over to Liverpool and do the same thing as we've been doing here, which would would have been okay. You know, I would have enjoyed it, but uh, I had everything I needed. Things changed. Times changed. The Beatles evolved and so did the generation that followed them. Tony Sheridan, meanwhile, entered a new phase on his own journey. The Viet Cong simultaneously attacked just about every major city and town in South Vietnam. He went to the heart of the wound defining the late 60s, the war in Vietnam. The war came to Saigon early in the morning of January 31st. The first target was the symbol of the American presence in Vietnam. When I heard that the Americans were sort of looking for people to go to Vietnam and play for the troops, I said yes immediately, because they couldn't get anybody from the States to go there, because one group had been ambushed and blown away. I was a bit apprehensive, because having been in Germany, been accepted by the Germans was one thing. I didn't know how an American audience would... Would they accept me for doing their music like taking coal to Newcastle. As it turned out, I got the first audience in my life who understood what I was singing, the language. It was American music. And they understood this guy's playing our own music, man. He's doing it good. He's got soul. Well, if I say my name, you will be a man. You're going to be the leader. 
finished up staying there a long time. A total of 18 months in Vietnam. I got hooked on it. Mm-hmm. As long as you're there, you get used to it. You even get used to the danger. The danger is heavy because it takes a toll on your nervous system. And, you, know, and you sort of put it in the back of your mind somewhere. And it, it doesn't go away. <laughs> and it comes back when you come back to civilization. After Vietnam, I started looking for truth. It wasn't in the Bible, it wasn't in the church, so I thought it's got to be somewhere else. I used to see people in Hamburg walking about in red, and especially men. You don't see men with pink trousers walking around or orange trousers. In those days, there weren't any. All these guys had this wooden chain around your neck with a picture of Bhagwan in it, you know. Mala. I've, I've got Mala, I'll show you later. Anyway... And I was fascinated by it. And it, part of me was saying, oh, look at these guys, you know, wasting their time. But, you know, what, what's it all about? You know, the guy's fooling everybody. He's fooling them too. And really, I was, in, inside, I was very interested, actually. Who is this guy, Bhagwan? And slowly, slowly, in, in Hamburg, they had a center. And I summoned up my courage once, and I went in. I just sort of fell in love spiritually with this guy. And I'd never seen him, only on photos, you know. I went and bought a second-hand book written by him called Nothing to Lose But Your Head, you know, which you will read, uh, you will see in certain places around here. And uh, it knocked me out. The book knocked me out completely. One of the things Bhagwan used to say is, most of us are neurotic anyway. We're, we're very mixed up, which we are. We're made to be that way. And before you really get into the spiritual side of life, you've got to straighten up your head. That means going into therapy, to, into groups, shouting at each other and thumping each other if necessary. Very active stuff, you know, getting it all out, you know, like John Lennon did with uh, Yanov. Something like that, you know, screaming at the top of your voice. I found myself screaming at my, my mother, you know. My mother was the problem, my big problem. Cancer. She was 56 when she died. I think the uterus or something... A lady's ailment, yes. Yeah, yeah. I didn't feel any love for the father I had never had or anything like that. I just wanted to see the guy and see if everything that my mother and her relatives said about him was true. I really went to work and I found out where he was. So, you know, I had a big chat with him. We went and had a, a few beers together. He was 75, so he was a big guy. He was, you know, I said, like, yeah, he looks all right, too. Shame about the hair. The hair's all gone, but never mind. You know, he said, I used to have lovely dark red hair when I was a... Your mother liked my dark red mahogany-coloured hair. I said, that explains why I had a red beard when I was a young guy. 
You know, it went white, of course, after Vietnam, like all the rest of it did. But there was never this thing, uh, you're my dad, now we're going to see each other every week for the rest of our lives, you know. Nothing like that. I, don't, I only saw him again once or something. I had all the answers I needed. Mm. So I didn't feel that. I sort of felt a sort of an affection for him, but nothing much more than that. And I saw that he'd been wronged. That was very important. He'd been wronged by my mother's relatives. After Vietnam, Tony set aside the mask provided by rock and roll and opened himself more to his audience. I've been a gypsy boy and a vagabond. I knew him mama son down in old Saigon. She said, you number one, won't you drink with me? I laid a dollar down for a 33. I really decided I don't want to be part of a group anymore. I'm a loner anyway. So I got myself an acoustic guitar and started playing in student clubs and blues clubs and doing it not as Tony Sheridan, the old rocker, but I'm a different person these days. But I did not die Moving with the flow I had to find a way to go to window China I landed in a, a VG, which is a Wongamachaft, a group of people living together. You know, all of us had a separate room, of course. The kitchen was for everybody, and we took turns at cleaning and washing up. And they were all sort of Maoists, leaning to the left, all of them. This is the new me after Vietnam. Back in the mountain yards, near the Hotel Grand, the French had put it there. Anyway, one day, somebody knocked on the door. This guy at the door, he says, Hi, are you Tony Sheridan? He says, uh, Hi, I'm from L.A., California, Southern California. You know California? All right. Tony, I've been sent here to look. I've been looking for you. Boy, have I looked for you. Can I come in, Tony? i got some good news for you. So he came in. He says, we got some uh, tapes that surfaced in L.A. and some business associates of mine have acquired these tapes and we need you to come over to California to push this material because we understand it is you singing with the Beatles and we want you to promote the stuff for us. Uh, are you, would you be willing to come over to L.A.? I says, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. At last, I think I was just waiting for this opportunity to go to the States. I've just come out of the student world where I was happy to sit on the stage sometimes and play the blues. And now they want me to talk about Johnny, we're going to get you in the films too, you know. Then they discovered the tapes were stolen. They couldn't do much about that. They were being sued by Polydor. The next thing is, they said, Tony, we, we got some friends. They know the Elvis, Elvis just died, Tony. He, he died recently, Elvis. And his band, the TCB band, Taking Care of Business band, they are available, Tony. And we want you, Tony, to go into the studio in L.A., with the musicians from Elvis, and we want you to cut an LP. 
How does that sound to you, Tony? I says, uh, yeah. All right. dilettants they were not actually involved in the music business they were sort of more from the old Hollywood era they were sort of more to do with film as well and they were just trying to get into the music business through the back door by doing this with me they thought they could buy anybody buy anything you know buy the musician from Elvis hey shit man they take they cost a lot of money but for you Tony no money is too much took a year of that and then escaped. I escaped. I actually went back, but on my own terms, did a couple of radio things and didn't amount to much. Didn't amount to much. Tony said he was good at music and failed relationships. After turbulent and adventurous years of both, he has children from two marriages. This is where he has ended up. A remote hamlet in rural Germany. A haven. From the 80s onwards, I always looked for a country situation where, you know, to get away from Hamburg. I, I don't know, just a, a car backfiring. You've never seen anybody hit the ground as quickly as I did after Vietnam. Just a big bang, any loud noise, I was on the floor. I'm not ashamed of myself, I was on the floor quickly. Are there other crazy people around as well? There must be. Yeah. <laughs> What's, as we're here, if you don't mind, what is the story behind this? Is it a lifetime award? Uh, well, I don't know. They decide, when was that? Six, uh, 2008? Eight. I got sick. The record company, maybe they thought I was going to kick the bucket or something. And they decided to, to give me this lifetime award. Anyways, I got another one upstairs, the gold record. This is my other gold record for, uh, I mean, in those days you had to sell it over a million to get one of these, you know. Actually, it sold about five million, this one. We were on tour back in the early 60s. Sharing this piece with him is Anna, Tony's manager and third wife. Everything okay? Ja, die haben Dienstags äh, Feiertag, also heute nicht. Aha, okay. Die haben ab 18 Uhr auf. Jetzt ist es Viertel vor sechs, also. This is our little office, so to speak. Come in. Ja, oh Gott, unaufgeräumt. Don't okay. worry. <lacht> Assorted Irish passports. <lacht> Going to the uh, British Embassy in Hamburg and actually, what's the word when you you solemnly swear that you are no longer a subject of Her Majesty. Yes, I did that. With relish, I must say. <laughs> yeah. We're sort of building up. It was this bloody Sunday thing. I, I didn't really want to be part of the oppressor. After Vietnam, I was sort of seeing the evil people 
any white people were sort of awful for me. You know, the British government killing people in Ireland, parachuters uh, mowing down people. I mean, I'd, I'd seen enough of that. I didn't really want to be part of anything like that. I didn't want to be part of being a white Briton, if you like. I wouldn't mind being a black Irishman, but that wasn't possible, so... <laughs> I lost that one. Oh, I'm just... Where's my new passport? Here. So here I'm known as Tony Sheridan. Look. Anthony Esmond or Sheridan McGinnity? Yes. yes. McGinnity being your mother's name? No, it's my father, too. So your so... father's name was actually McGinnity? Yes. That, and he had, Sheridan was his middle name or whatever? Not, that not was his mother's name. name. His mother's name. His mother's name, OK. Yes. All right, gotcha. His father was McGinnity, his mother was Sheridan. So. Well, I went down to play on a Saturday night. I said, hey, Lonnie, give us half a light. I feel like making some music on my beatable guitar when I was young. You know, my daddy was old. He never thought much of that rock and roll. Thought I'd drive my mother round the bend. I've got more or less everything I, I ever desired. I've learned to love someone and to be loved as well, to let it in, you know, to accept the fact that somebody can love me as well. You know? Money and fame were not important to me at all. Adoration and lots of acceptance. I wanted to be accepted by my peers people I thought were sort of worth playing to and for. Now I'm older and I can see They all meant the best for me But they don't know there's nothing else Music for me was acceptance. Fighting for the saying, please love me, please admire me, please accept what I'm doing, please give me the thumbs up and not the other one. But that was many years ago I've been a very lucky guy indeed. Will someone kindly shut the door?